Welcome to The Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture with leading experts on the Bible, hosted by Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or at thetwotestaments.com, where you can also donate to support our work. Follow us on Twitter at the number two testaments on Facebook or Instagram. Welcome to the Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture. I'm Ronnie Cosman. And I'm Will Kynes. In this episode, we're looking at a range of issues in the book of Deuteronomy, including the land or environment, uh, the economy, uh, laws on sexual violence. Uh, and we're looking at chapters 11, 12, tw- sorry, 11, 22, 24, and 26. And we're joined today by Dr. Sandra Richter. Yeah, so Ronnie, the, that range of texts <laughs> that we're looking at, let me take a minute to explain that. Uh, so if you've been following along in our Deuteronomy series so far, you know that we looked at chapters 1 to 4 with Paul House, and then we looked at the Decalogue or Ten Commandments in chapter 5 with Carmen Imes. But we also, in that episode, looked at chapters 12 and 13 because she's an expert on this bearing God's name, and the name command seems to be connected with those passages. Mm-hmm. Then we looked at chapter 6 with John Levinson, but we also looked at chapter 10, which picks up on that theme of love. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we looked at chapter 7 with Matt Lynch and the question of violence. And what, since we had him on to talk about that, we looked at other passages related to war and punishment in chapters 19 to 21. So you can see what we're doing here is we're working our way through the book, but we're also drawing on the expertise of these various scholars and connecting to other parts of the book that touch on that same theme. Because we do want to try and touch on as many of the texts and major themes from Deuteronomy as we can, but we just don't have time to do 34 episodes, one on each chapter. Unfortunately, uh, yeah. maybe in due course. So, um, so what we have today, we're jumping ahead a little bit now, and we're, we're starting with chapter 11, but mm-hmm. we're looking at this range of texts because we have Sandra Richter with us, and she has a great range of expertise mm-hmm. in the book of Deuteronomy. Has written on a lot of these different issues, and we just wanted to take advantage of the range of things that she has studied and written on in the past. So we're jumping around a little bit here, but as we're having this conversation, I'm sure we'll find ways where there are kind of common themes and ways that we can pull this conversation together. But let me introduce uh, Dr. Sandra Richter to our listeners now. So she is Robert H. Gundry Chair of Biblical Studies at Westmont College. And I have a couple of her books with me here. So one of them is The Epic of Eden, which gives a Christian entry into the Old Testament. So this is kind of an introduction into biblical theology, which could be really helpful. Uh, But then this book is the reason why I initially thought to invite her on here, because uh, this is Stewards of Eden, what Scripture says about the environment and why it matters. And this is why I thought I'd want to bring her in for Deuteronomy, because this theme of the land is so (laughs) crucial uh, in Deuteronomy. Uh, And this book has come out to a a lot of acclaim uh, recently, and so we recommend it to people to check out. So we're looking at these commands in our conversation today that relate to these questions of environmental stewardship, uh, but also the economy and uh, laws related to sexual violence. So thanks so much for being with us, Sandy. It is such a joy to be here. Thank you for the invitation and listening to your list of experts on Deuteronomy. My goodness, you've had some of my favorite people on your podcast. <laughs> so It's been incredibly fun to have these conversations with them, and so we look forward to our conversation with you today. Yes, absolutely. Um, Thank you. Now, you're also working on a commentary on Deuteronomy, is that right? Yes, and at some point before the cows come home, I hope to have it finished, um, Erdman's is like drumming their fingers on the table at this point in time. So, yeah, we're getting there. Well, that's a big undertaking. And mm-hmm. I'm curious, what first drew you to the book of Deuteronomy and these issues in particular? Why have they kind of gripped you and why did you start studying them? Yeah. Uh, so the way I started doing Deuteronomy was kind of a a random seminar assignment when I was at Harvard's Near Eastern Language and Civilizations Department, which is where I did my PhD. And they have a class that all the 
Harvard grads who are listening to your podcast know oh so well. Uh, it is officially known as the 200 Seminar. We call it Harvard's Hazing Ritual. Okay. And you are required to present twice in front of the faculty and the rest of the department. And to your joy and sanctification, their job is to tear you limb from limb. And uh, my... One of my first assignments there was to uh, write a book on um, presence theology in the Hebrew Bible, and I got assigned Deuteronomy. So that was a little bit random, but in that seminar paper is where I started my work on the name theology and uh, upset all sorts of apple carts. Um, from uh, Jews to evangelicals, and you know, in in the words of, of Jerry Walls, if you don't make someone mad, why'd you write it in the first place? So uh, <laughs> I made a lot of people mad, but that was the beginning of my inquiry into Deuteronomy. And the more I studied it and realized that what we're dealing with here are the constitution and bylaws of the people of Israel. Uh, this is the blueprint. Um, what more important book do we do we have to deal with? And I, I know that every scholar will make those claims about their their personal <laughs> book, but Constitution and bylaws, come on, team. Um, yeah. So between that and the fact that we've got three law codes in our Old Testament, uh, the Covenant Codes, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, um, I'm very interested in biblical law. Again, blueprint stuff. So yeah. very interested in Deuteronomy. Yeah. And then we are looking at a range of different topics here, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how these topics, land, economy, sexual violence, how do they fit into this law code, this original constitution? Mm -hmm. uh, how do they fit into Deuteronomy? Well, Deuteronomy, of course, is trying to structure the life of Israel in the land. And uh, I just had this talk with my undergrads uh, just yesterday. Um, if, if God is going to step into human history, he's going to have to uh, enculturate. And uh, you know, if we're, if we're going to speak of a deity who actually uh, interacts with human history, there's, there's going to have to be a number of levels of enculturation. Certainly language, culture, um, real space, real time, all that sort of thing. So when we uh, deal with Deuteronomy, we're dealing with uh, God's enculturation of his character, his moral code, uh, his person into the everyday lives of everyday people. And so everything from how you're going to practice sustainable agriculture so that the next generation can survive as well as this generation has survived, to uh, respect for your citizenry, protection of the tribe, the economic and military well-being of your society, and really individual civil rights. Of course, that's all going to have to be represented in the law codes. Now, Sandy, what for you is the most difficult thing about either the Deuter Deuteronomy as a whole or these questions that we're going to be and issues we're going to be looking at? Hmm. You know, that what is... What do you find most particularly challenging? <laughs> um, what do I find most challenging? Let me launch by saying I find all of it super interesting, right? Hmm. Um, probably the most challenging thing for scholars is to, with integrity ourselves enculturate into the text, to actually attend to the boundaries, identity, ideologies of the people we're studying, as opposed to imposing our own upon it. I, I think that's always a challenge. And then in doing that, of course, we're, we're in ancient history, uh, mastering the Middle Assyrian law codes so that the law codes of Israel make sense. Um, understanding codes of behavior and economic norms that uh, 
translate all the way down into how and why we have arranged marriages in this tribal culture. These are, these are all a reach for a 21st century audience. And for me, I would say the reach is mastering all of these different pools of information so that I can translate it to a 21st century student of the Bible who doesn't have my level of expertise, but desperately wants to understand um, that leather bound book they're carrying around. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's something that I think uh, you do particularly well in your work. Uh, is, I mean, you're able to do the very detailed scholarship, but you're also able to connect this ancient world to the modern world in some powerful ways. And uh, Stewards of Eden, so let's move mm. to the question of land. And um, okay. in, in this book, you're thinking about land, which is this prominent theme in Deuteronomy. In fact, I looked it up, and the Hebrew word for land, Eretz, appears 197 times in the book of Deuteronomy. And wow. when I look at the index of Stewards of Eden, Deuteronomy is cited more than any other biblical text. Yeah. And even within Deuteronomy, chapter 11 is the place where land is probably repeated the most times. You can do different searches on accordance and find different mm. ways of measuring this. Mm -hmm. uh, but just to give you a taste of how prominent uh, land is in Deuteronomy, I'm going to read verses 8 to 12 for us. So it says, Keep then this entire commandment that I am commanding you today so that you may have strength to go in and occupy the land that you are crossing over to occupy and so that you may live long in the land that the Lord swore to your ancestors to give them and to their descendants a land flowing with milk and honey. For the land that you are about to enter to occupy is not like the <laughs> land of Egypt from which you have come where you sow your seed and irrigate by foot like a vegetable garden, but the land that you are crossing over to occupy is a land of hills and valleys watered by rain from the sky, a land that the Lord your God looks after. The eyes of the Lord your God are always on it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. Not so, a very creative writer, I must say. <laughs> <laughs> but you know how these Hebrew, these Hebrew authors use repetition yes. for emphasis. Uh -huh. yes. uh -huh. So when Deuteronomy refers to land, what is Deuteronomy referring to? Is it talking about the same thing that we talk about when we talk about maybe the environment? And then the, the related question is, why is land so important in the book of Deuteronomy? Great, great questions. So why is land so important to the book of Deuteronomy? And I would circle back again to the idea that it is the constitution and bylaws of this nation. And as we all know our covenant theology, what Yahweh is doing is he's offering his people a land grant. And mm. if your audience has been through Epic of Eden, they have gotten a big dose of covenant treaty documents, what suzerain and vassals are all about. And once again, God is stepping into their context and is explaining himself as a suzerain who's given a land grant to his people. And that means he's given them a place of security, both economic and military, to live out their lives in service to him. And essentially in the old covenant, all of the blessings that come from that covenant can be distilled down into one idea. And that is, if you keep my covenant, you will keep the land. And that means military protection, it means economic stability, and it means a functioning society, right? These are the blessings distilled down into one statement. You keep Haaretz, you keep the land. The curses, of course, are the flip side of that. Mm. If you fail to keep my covenant, then I will not defend you militarily. I will not take care of your economy. I will not keep your society stable, and you will lose the land, which, of course, we all know they did. So I would say that's the core idea of why the land is so important. And as for every society, ancient and modern, the land is the source of their sustenance. So when we think about land, we don't think about mm -hmm. it in that kind of covenantal way. Uh, right. You know, if, like if we're talking about the land that we live in, this mm -hmm. land is your land, this land mm -hmm. is my land, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. But recently, there is a lot of concern with land and thinking about it from an environmental perspective. And, and that's a big theme of your book, Stewards of Eden. Mm -hmm. So we have to be, you know, you were just talking about jumping from this ancient context to our modern context. Yeah. But we do have serious concerns about land. So are there things mm -hmm. that we can learn from the way that Deuteronomy talks about the land that could help us think about the environment today? How do we do that in a responsible way? 
So how do we do responsible environmental thought? And that's what Stewards of Eden is all about. It's a, a whole um, biblical witness treatment, uh, a biblical theology of do we do environmentalism, and if so, how we do it? If we track who God is from Eden to the New Jerusalem, we find an awful lot of environmental concern expressed through God's character. And what I do in the book, and I try to do it super briefly because I want this to be almost a track of so attractive sorts, um, is that the relationship between God and humanity in the garden makes it expressly clear that the garden belongs to God, but like a land grant, he's given it to humanity so that humanity can have what they need. But humanity was created in the sixth day, not the seventh day. Um, humanity is under the creator. So that when we start exercising our dominion, we should be exercising it as a reflection of the way he exercises dominion. And then when we get to Israel, which is where Deuteronomy comes in, and Leviticus is in the mix too, but Deuteronomy is the political law code. Leviticus is the cultic law code. So that's why Deuteronomy gets pride of place in, in my work. Um, we find out that even in a fallen uh, a fallen world, the people of God are still required to treat the garden with respect. And what I tease out in the book is that in this law code, which could be as old as 1400 BC, 1200 BC, 1000 BC, you know, depending on, Deuteronomy is always a moving target here, but um, no matter which of those dates you choose, this is way before the ecology movement of the 1950s and 60s. Yeah. And in this document, we find very straightforward laws about sustainable agriculture, humane animal husbandry, that environmental terrorism is named and forbidden. Care of the wild creature is right there in the forefront. So these are expressions of God's character as he deals with a populace that couldn't have had tremendous impact on the environment because there just weren't that many of them. And then, of course, as we track the biblical record all the way through the New Jerusalem, those concerns are, are continually reiterated. So I say all of that to say we cannot simply lift Israel's law out of Deuteronomy and, you know, drop it over and smack it onto the United States of America. But what we can do is see that the value system in a fallen world, a subsistence economy where people are just barely making it, is still a value system that protects the land and the wild and domestic creature, not only for this generation, but for the next. It's interesting that uh, when in, in Genesis, like when we get to the story of Noah and the flood, that God, when he looks at the earth, he sees that it's become corrupt. Yes. Right? Which, is, which is pretty fascinating. It's almost like that, I mean, we can think about what does it mean that it has become corrupt you know humans are also doing violence and that kind of thing but the corruption of the land is i don't know is it right to say that it's almost the tipping point of why god then starts to say all right you humans i'm wiping you off mm -hmm. and the creatures mm -hmm. and then we're going to start again with creation but it's almost i don't know if it's right it's not only the land that's the tipping point maybe but it seems to really provoke god to Right. So when to the regret. human wickedness starts to seep into the land itself, yeah. that's when God has really had enough. Well, and I would point out that in Noah's flood, which is our best analog to the second coming and the great judgment, and that's pretty powerful stuff, that it's humanity that's judged and it is mm -hmm. the natural world that's preserved. Mm -hmm. It's washed clean, but it's preserved. Now, the following verses in verses 13 to 17, mm -hmm. uh, we read that uh, if the people obey God's commands, and here's, here's what we read, then, the, then uh, he will give the rain for your land in its season, mm -hmm. the early rain and the later rain, and you will gather in your grain, your wine, and your oil, and he will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you will eat your fill. But, of course, if they worship other gods, the Lord, we're told, will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit. Mm. 
Now, this passage is one of several in the book where people's behavior seems to directly affect what what's happening in the natural world or what comes upon it. What, what What's going on here? Mm. So my first read of that text would be through an economic lens, right? Okay. That God has promised these people that if they keep the covenant, uh, they will have stability. They'll have enough. Because, of course, when we go all the way back to Genesis 3, what is the curse? Um, Adam, because you have rebelled against me, the Adama has rebelled against you. Adama being cultivatable land. So when you cultivate it, instead of getting what you need, tomatoes and grain and olives, um, you'll get thorns and thistles. So my first read of that is that if Israel is obedient in their land grant, that God will make sure their land grant provides for them as needed. If they're not obedient, he will not protect them economically, and they won't have what they need. I do think we can extrapolate from that that uh, bad behavior has a bad impact on the ground, um, the ground being the Adama. But that, that for me, would not be the primary impact of that passage. It would more be that land-grant promise of economic stability. But I'm sure, and Ronnie, you're, I'm sure you're into this one as well, this whole business that if we don't do agriculture in a sustainable fashion, that not only will the land collapse, but God will judge. Mm -hmm. And so Leviticus will come back from a cultic perspective and say, because you didn't let the ground go fallow, mm -hmm. which in an ancient agriculturalist's world means sustainable agriculture, because you didn't allow for fallow, I'm taking the land back. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to give it its fallow. In other mm -hmm. words, 70 years of you being boxed up over in Babylon so that the land can recover. And that's a very interesting intersection between divine judgment and, you know, good old soil ecology. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. it's your suggestion then that... When it says that the Lord will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit, that's more of an expression of saying because you've abused the land, you haven't cared for it properly, even when it rains, you're not going to profit from that rain. It's just going to run off the land. It's not going to um, be effective in terms of bringing the, the produce that you need. Yeah, those are that's just a great question. Um, when I read those passages, I don't hear – an abused land um, uh, retaliating, because really that would that would be a climate change issue, uh, and we're not experiencing climate change in the Iron Age. I hear divine judgment, That's and okay. because Israel is a dry farming community, and here's where my economic stuff comes in. Um, a major separation between Egypt and Mesopotamia, our two superpowers in the ancient world, and the land of Canaan, is that both Egypt and Mesopotamia are irrigation agriculturalists, mm -hmm. which means that even when the weather goes bad, they're able to sustain their crops, whereas right. our team, they're dry farmers. So this is why Baal is so important to the indigenous population, because he's the god of the storm. And if you don't get your thunderstorms, you don't get your rain. If you don't get your rain, you don't get your crops, and then your kids go hungry. And it creates not only economic, but international instability. So, And you see a reflection of that in the passage yes, that I just read, yeah. where land is repeated yeah. over and over again, because it says the land you're about to occupy is not like the land of Egypt. Mm. Where you mm -hmm. you sow your seed and irrigate by foot like a vegetable garden, but yeah. instead it's this land of hills and valleys watered by rain from the sky. So there's this yeah. absolute dependence yes. upon God yeah. to send those rain. I also wonder rain. is because you, the other thing I was wondering is that it says if you go worship the other gods, mm -hmm. then God is going to shut the heavens. So I don't know if this ties into what you were saying, but if you go and worship Baal or any of the uh -huh. other deities trying to get the heavens to open, well, I'm going to, like, intervene and shut it. Right. Yes. So is, is that what, yes. what's going on there? Yeah, okay. I, I do, I do. This is an apologetic um, a statement. Yeah, I, I think you have your finger okay. right on the pulse of it. And, of course, what you also have your finger on is why Baal is such a temptation. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I don't think that's terribly difficult to translate into a contemporary world that we safeguard ourselves 
through an array of mechanisms so that if God doesn't show up, we're still okay, right? Mm -hmm. Harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than a camel to get through the eye of a needle. Because why do we want our wealth and our 401ks and our houses paid off? We want a safeguard, right? Right, right. So if I'm a farmer and, you know, I would be very tempted to under the um, shadow of darkness or in the back room of my house, try to keep Baal happy too, um, mm. because he's the one who provides the rain. Mm. Yeah, and you yeah. see a reflection of this in First Kings with the Elijah episode, where mm. people, that's exactly what I was thinking. Baal, of. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what God does. Yeah, he shuts yeah. the heavens right, and doesn't right, allow right, the right, rain yeah, to yeah. come for three years. And so you're yeah. seeing this yeah. idea from Deuteronomy picked up there. Now, in addition to land, um, you've also done work on women and family in Deuteronomy. Yes. Uh, So we're going to jump forward to chapter 22. But before we get to the laws on sexual violence in that chapter, there's Mm -hmm. a fascinating little law in chapter 22, verse 6. Uh, that I don't know if it picks up on some of the land or environmental concerns we've just discussed or maybe a little bit different. It -hmm. says, if you come on a bird's nest... In any tree or on the ground with fledglings or eggs, with the mother sitting on the fledglings or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. Let the mother go, taking only the young for yourself, in order that it may go well with you and you may live long. What, what's the, what do you see as the point of this law here? First of all, thank you for reading this wonderful little obscure law, which just <laughs> makes me so happy every time we read it. Um, they... Um, Typically, commentators will state that this law and the law of not cutting down the fruit trees during siege warfare, mm-hmm. which are both seem very obscure, especially this is an Iron Age document. Who cares about a wild bird, right? <laughs> um, but it's an analogia is what, what they'll speak of it as, is a, one representation of a larger idea. And the representation is... Our people are barely making it. Baruch Rosen, an Israeli archaeologist, has demonstrated through hard data that our people are dealing with a 60-day hungry season every, every year. So when we talk subsistence agriculture, we know that everyone, except for the uber-rich, knows that they're going to run out of their essential food supply before the harvest comes in for the next year. And I think it's very important for us as 21st century readers to know that the people we're reading about are hungry as these laws are being um, implemented. So for them to come across a bird's nest means cheap protein, cheap, free protein. Um, One of my mentors, Larry Steger, he loved to put this question on comps, which was, when was the chicken domesticated? And again, anyone from my background will immediately jump in with iron two, iron two. Um, So we've got no chickens. We don't have domestic geese. So to come across a bird's nest is a wonderful little surprise because you can have scrambled eggs in the morning. Uh, But here the law of God is saying you can take the eggs but you can't take the mother too. And I interpret that as a statement about sustainable treatment of the wild animal. We want that mother bird to be able to lay a second um, uh, catch of eggs. We want her to be able to continue to reproduce so that she continues to be represented in the land, but we also recognize that our people are hungry. So it is sustainable. It is not vegan. It is not necessarily vegetarian, but it is sustainable. And for that law to show up in a subsistence economy in the Iron One, early Iron Two, should shout at us as a, as a society that very rarely goes hungry, that we too can practice uh, sustainable treatment of the wild animal and its habitat. Interesting. Uh, yeah. What about the fle- the fledglings? It also says mm. you, the language there. Yeah. That, I assume that means they're hatched. Is that right? Is that yeah. what a fledgling they're, is? They're hatched, and if you take a fledgling by the feet and dip it in boiled yeah. water, um, there are a lot of communities that enjoy okay. fresh okay. baby birds. I also okay. I, I have a, an article that was published in BBR a number of years ago. 
that um, shows that, uh, you know, the Assyrians are our favorite bullies of the ancient Near East, um, <laughs> known and loved. Well, for I don't know. The Egyptians, <laughs> you know, as an Egyptian, I kind of always feel bad because the Egyptians are always the bullies. But I, I'll give you the Assyrians. That's fine. <laughs> okay. Well, the Egyptians are, I mean, I, I don't want to, like, crowd them out on the, on the playground of the fertile world. But... Um, so uh, the, the Assyrians, I used to call them the Borg of the ancient Near East. You know, <laughs> resistance is futile, you shall be assimilated. <laughs> and then my students stopped watching Star Trek, so it was kind of all over. But um, the point being that they celebrated their brutality in image and text, and it was one of their ways of keeping the conquered world in check. So they would often um, portray the lion hunt. We've all seen the depictions in the British Museum, and they're brutal, right? So I, I did some research and found that in the same images where the hunters are triumphantly coming home with the dead lions, there are images of them coming home with a captured mother and nest of eggs. Oh, so seizing the mother and her young is also being portrayed as a mark of royal prowess. So mm -hmm. the Israelites are being uh, pushed back from that line. Um, basically, that bait hunting, um, caged hunting, uh, there's nothing noble about it is coming through that passage as well. Mm. Well, that's fascinating. Mm. Uh, okay. Now let's move into these laws later in chapter 22 that mm. deal with issues of adultery and sexual violence. Uh, and the first issue that the text deals with is in verses 13 to 19. And it's a man who wants to divorce his wife, so he makes up a charge against her that she was not a virgin when they were married. And mm -hmm. if this happens, the woman's father is supposed to come to her defense and show mm -hmm. evidence of her virginity. And right. then when the man's slander is revealed, he has to pay the father a fine of 100 shekels of silver, and he's mm -hmm. never permitted to divorce his wife. So there are some aspects of this law that are strange to us as yes. modern readers. So how should mm -hmm. we understand it? Yeah. So, um, you know, if uh, if you all have access to the Jets article I put out on that, if, if you're allowed yeah, we'll to... Post it on yeah. your website. I, I think that would be helpful because, as you're saying, well, it's complicated, mm -hmm. and it's it's complicated again uh, in that acculturation deal. Um, for a 21st century American woman, my level of sexual agency is as high as it is on in the globe. On the globe, you know, I have more say so over who my sexual partners will be and what my sexual encounters will look like than probably any woman in the history of human civilization. Mm -hmm. um, not that those choices necessarily turn out well, but I still have that level of agency. Okay, and as you guys both know, that is not the case in the ancient world. And um, not only does uh, a woman in the ancient world not have sexual agency, honestly, no one in a tribal culture in a subsistence economy has full agency. Even the patriarch has limits on what he's allowed to do. Um, the main one being that his property, the property of the bet ah, the um, extended family, uh, doesn't belong just to him. It belongs to the past generation and it belongs to the next generation. So there's all sorts of boundaries on behavior in Israel's tribal culture that are very, very foreign to us. And a major one is what marriage is for, first of all. In my culture, marriage is uh, all about romance and chemistry and building off of that romance and chemistry to build a perfect life of two uh, beautiful children in the suburbs. So we need to back up to the idea that marriage was all about allying two families. And um, in allying the two families, neither the groom nor the bride are going to have full agency. Their parents are going to choose their partner. They'll have a voice in it. Um, and the better relationship that they have with their parents, the more of a voice they're going to have. But it's going to come down to the choices of the patriarchs of the two families, who gets married. And this is also a patrilineal society, back to Epic of Eden, which means that inheritance 
is uh, runs through the male line, period. That's how these people do things. Um, we're not going to canonize their culture, but we're going to recognize it. And since inheritance runs through the male line and the two primary pieces of property that everyone is concerned about are land and children, for a woman to enter a marriage bond, she has to enter as a virgin. Because if she's not a virgin, the patrilineal line is unclear. So again, is this our value system? Not necessarily, but it certainly was theirs. So for her to protect her primary asset to her extended family, which is her ability to reproduce, is a critical responsibility on the shoulders of a young woman. And she needs to enter the marriage bond, uh, being able to affirm her virginity. Hence, if she enters the marriage bond, Two families have allied. One family has paid the bride price. The other family has presented their well-raised, well-trained young woman as a gift to the allied family. For her to enter in, having been irresponsible with her own fertility, is not only a matter of shame, which it is, but it's a crime. It's a crime against her family. It's a crime against the other family. Equally so for the young man who decides, eh, don't really like her, to accuse her of that level of shame and irresponsibility, and the accusation isn't true, is, is also a crime. And uh, she has protection in that midst. And by the way, Will, typically it's not the father who comes forward with the garment, it's the mother, which I mm. find is intriguing too. One of the things the legislators are so interested in, and Jeff Tigay does a lot with this, there is not a mother on the planet that cannot produce a bloody sheet, okay? Um, I might have to uh, get in the backyard and find that chicken, but I can produce a bloody sheet, and I can protect my daughter's life if I need to. Interesting. Now, yeah. what, can you clarify what is at stake exactly in the patrilineal line? Can you just tease this mm -hmm. out a, a little more explicitly? If she is not a virgin, does it mean that she... The idea is that she may, uh, that the patrilineal line gets confused because there's another male involved? Yes. Uh, who that, okay. Yeah, and thank so you, you for clarifying. you don't the children belong to at that mm -hmm. point. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, again, Epic of Eden has a couple of chapters on this. Um, when we step back into Israel's world, we're stepping back into a tribal culture. And for your mm -hmm. listeners to be thinking about Saudi Arabia, um, and uh, the fact that every child can recite their heritage by their knuckles. I don't know if they do that in Egypt, mm. where you can name the father, the grandfather, the great-grandfather. I mean, um, we, definitely, we definitely add the names, like your, your next name is the name of your father, and then the name after that is the, like on your birth certificate is how it works, yeah. Ah, uh, and, yeah. and it's... I find that really beautiful. Of course, I, I kind of live my life in the Iron Age. Um, sure. <laughs> that's that sort of, of of tribal family solidarity. Yeah. I mean, I know uh -huh. it can get incredibly messy, but sure. it's also it's also for <laughs> for this military kid who moved every two years of her life. I think it's pretty cool. Okay, sure. so they they are a tribal society. We should be thinking about Egypt, about Saudi, about Indigenous Americans. So protecting the tribe is really, really important mm -hmm. because ultimately what we're doing is protecting resources so we know we can feed the next generation. So if that young woman has um, become pregnant by someone from outside uh, the recognized suitable husbands within the extended clan, um, she is giving away the, um, the archived resources of her clan to an outsider. And it's considered um, not only putting your family at risk, um, it's just considered a great crime against uh, the clan, against the tribe. One thing that helps my students is when I remind them that a young woman's fertility is just as important to the household as a young man's strength. And so if a young woman is irresponsible with her fertility, in other words, she slept around, she can be stoned because she's put the well-being of her family at risk, for a young man to be irresponsible with his contribution, which is all of that fabulous young strength of a well-fed 20-year-old, 
and for him to become a glutton and a drunkard and refuse to work, he can be stoned as well. Now, okay, when we get to verses 20 to 21 then, yeah. we deal with, uh, the, first we saw kind of a false accusation. Now we have mm-hmm. what, what Deuteronomy calls a true charge or accusation right. of, of a lack of virginity. And there are some kind of peculiar asymmetries here that, that mm-hmm. might be troubling. Um, first, if the husband makes a false accusation, he only has to pay a fine. But if the accusation is proven, in this case, then the woman is executed. Now, yes. in a previous episode, right, when we talked to Matt Lynch, we saw that we looked at the law for false witnesses in chapter 19, verses 16 to 21. And there it says that you shall do to the false witness just as the false witness had meant to do to the other. So mm-hmm. why is that not being practiced here? Why does the man only pay a fine and why is he not executed if she's going to, you know, she would be executed if, if she was found to be guilty? Yeah, great question. Um, so uh, let me tweak. It's not exactly a fine. Okay. What he is paying is what would have been the mohar and he's doubling it. So mohar is what we translate as the bride price. I kind of okay. prefer bride gift because he's not buying her. And we, okay. we have laws for buying a concubine, buying a woman who is a slave for reproductive purposes. We have laws for that. Um, the bride gift is something different. And what happens with the bride gift is the father uh, keeps it partly for the well-being of the household that has lost the young woman, but he also keeps it in trust for her. So if she winds up widowed or divorced and no one's able to step in, she has resources. It's kind of like a trust fund. So what this young husband has done, who is falsely accused, is he has doubled the mohar and he cannot divorce her. Again, we think about marriage as romance, chemistry, love match, and they lived happily ever after. These people thought about marriage much more as a career track. Marry a man who's able to give you a good place in society, take care of your children, raise your children, and establish your place in society. A woman could always be divorced. So for this young woman to know that her career track is secure, it's like tenure. It's Mm -hmm. like um, emeritus status at the law firm. Uh, she's not going anywhere. So it's, uh, it is securing her career track. So that is the penalty he pays. He has to secure her position. I can see why we might rather have him executed. I'm not sure how much that helps her because mm-hmm. now her position as a woman who isn't a virgin, who's been married, who's been falsely accused, is going to be harder for her to find a match. Um, now, today, the, is the, go ahead. Sorry, is the false accusation then, like, um, are we supposed, should I then assume that it's not a malicious false accusation in the sense of he intended to have her? Well, in the first, no, the first, it says he intends to divorce her, so he makes up a false accusation. So, I mean, and the penalty of that false accusation is her death. I mean, that seems like he's getting off pretty, pretty, yeah. pretty light mm. for... For trying I mean, to get true, her but, killed, I mean, the point right? that Sandy's making is it's not going to help her out very much. If he's dead. If he's dead. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not sure I'd want to be married to I someone know. who just tried to kill me. <laughs> I, I know. I know. And uh, I, 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 I hear what you're saying and, and yeah. that this is perhaps not the sure. perfect way to deal with it. Um, can I also say, and Tegay plays with this a good bit, as does Hugenberger, Gordon Hugenberger and his... Um, magna opus on marriage contracts, that this uh, law is also sets us up for the love match. So thinking back to Fiddler on the Roof, what if the father didn't give way and let her marry the young tailor? Well, all the young tailor has to do is run off to a vineyard um, <laughs> And uh, they have premarital sex, and um, this actually secures the match, which is intriguing as well. And so right, both right. Hugenberger no, and, right. and Tegay name this as the loophole for the love match. Mm, yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. Intriguing. Now, the other, uh, the other okay. asymmetry here, which I think you've already addressed, is that there's no law regarding men being virgins at marriage. No. But there is no. this law here for women. But you've, you've addressed that... 
that's because of this this concern about patrilineal um, descendants. I think that is the core legal issue, but I am not going to put uh, misogyny past these people. Um, you know, I, I do think there is societal corruption in this mix as well, that a woman's uh, a woman has less sexual agency than a man does in this society. Uh, but the core issue of her fertility is not a god who is emerging from the Victorian era. It is the protection of the patrilineal line. And we see a lot of these issues coming out to play in the story of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac, mm -hmm. right? Uh, is that there's there's this issue of he wants his patrilineal lineage to continue, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, yeah. But it also has to be through Sarah, which I always find very fascinating. Okay, let's look then, um, maybe more briefly, we'll see how this goes, uh, <laughs> at the series of other laws that Deuteronomy gives us. As Deuteronomy likes to do, it gathers together a bunch of related laws here. So starting in verse 22, we get straight up adultery. So there's a man lying with the wife of another man. And in that mm -hmm. case, both the man and the woman are supposed to be executed. But then we yes. get two cases with a woman who's betrothed to be married. So she's engaged. She's not yet married. And it says, if a man, quote unquote, meets her in mm -hmm. town and lies with her, then they're both executed. But if he, quote, seizes her and lies with her in the country, only the man is to be executed. So why this distinction between the city and the country? And is it significant that the verb seize, which is chazak, only mm -hmm. appears in that latter case? I, I think absolutely it is significant. And, um, and I love the fact that Deuteronomy differentiates. So uh, what's going on in the first case is it's a consensual tryst uh, between uh, a woman who is pledged to be married, which the betrothal period takes a year. Both of these families have already gone through the choosing process. The bride gift has already been exchanged. In their legal world, she is already married, uh, but the union has not been consummated yet. And again, these are hard these are small towns. Uh, we anticipate that the average Iron Age village is about 250 people. So the repercussions of the misbehavior of these two young adults is huge. So these two come together, um, uh, consensual tryst. Uh, she, uh, at some level, consents. And that really is what Deuteronomy is after, and uh, in this particular article I wrote, I did a great deal of research on current rape law. It's what rape law is after. Is there consent or isn't there? And Deuteronomy is clarifying to us that in verses 23 and 24, um, there was consent. These two are actively engaged. Both are going to bear the price for their crime. And then this business about them being in the city. The idea is that if she had cried out for help in these packed out villages, someone would have heard and would have helped her. And so she is recognized as having consented um, in their world in many of the same ways our world. Um, you know, if you do a rape kit in the emergency room, you're looking for pelvic tilt. You're looking for bruises and abrasions. Um, that prove that this woman was not willingly participating in this sexual act. So that's what 23 and 24 are after. She's willingly participating, and therefore she's an adulteress, and so is he, and they pay for it with a capital crime. So mm -hmm. when we get to 25, it says, but if in the country a man happens upon a young woman, um, Tigay, again, deals with this extensively and, and brings in um, the halakha and a variety of other Jewish law that uh, clarify that uh, city versus country is not simply city versus country. It is uh, in a, a place where help is available or in a place where help is not available. And so that additional paragraph, 25 through 27, are all about non-consent. As Will has already identified, the verb chazak is being used in the second scenario. And although Hebrew doesn't have a verb for rape, um, that idea of uh, seizing and force, I think, is clearly communicated. And what we're looking at in this passage is indeed a rape. And when we get to the end of 27, 
for the betrothed woman screamed, but there was no one to rescue her. And as a result, this man is going to pay with his life. In uh, the, the series of uh, laws ends in verses 28 to 29 with a man now seizing a woman who is not engaged. And in this case, the man is required to give the woman's father 50 shekels of silver and then to marry the woman. Uh, and then he is prohibited from divorcing her. Now, this text seems to suggest that women were forced to marry their rapist. Uh, mm-hmm. Is that is that what you think is going on here, or is this something else? Oh, the seizing seems to suggest a kind of coer- you know, forced, non-consensual act. Um, mm-hmm. what's, what's, is the, I mean, this is kind of yeah. bizarre. We don't have chazak in this passage. Instead, we have a man who happens to meet a virgin who is not pledged to be married. Now, if you're okay. reading in the NIV, the next thing you're going to read is and rapes her. And they are discovered. Okay, I'm on the NIV committee, and I am busy arguing at this point in time that that translation be changed. Because we don't have seizing, and we uh, don't have a verb for rape. What we have instead is something akin to takes hold of her. Mm. So we have tafas here. We don't have chazak here. And what exactly is happening with the tafas? Well, first of all, we know the woman is not betrothed, so we don't have two families already lined up. We know she's available for marriage at this point in time. Um, What are we going to do with tafas? Well, we're going to turn to one of the other law codes in the biblical text. We have the Deuteronomic law code. Let's turn over to uh, the Book of the Covenant, the Covenant Code. And here in Exodus 22, verses 15 through 16, we read a parallel law. And if a man pata a virgin who is not engaged, and he lies with her, he is required to pay a bride price for her to become his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he shall pay silver equal to the bride price for virgins. All right, well, what does pata mean? Well, it means to open a door. It also means to seduce, to confuse. Hmm. I make the argument in the article that here we have uh, a silver-tongued Romeo, um, or in the words of a country song, a walkaway Joe, and mm-hmm. a young man who's found a young woman who is beautiful and attractive, and he seduces her. We'll be interested to know that this is the same verb that is used when Delilah talks Samson into letting her cut his hair. So I would argue that what happens in this last paragraph is a seduction. And that seduction uh, needs to be countered. And it needs to be countered with the security of the young woman. Because her economic well-being, her future career as a bride and a mother has been compromised by this irresponsible young man. So what do we do? We tell him, dude, you thought you were going to, you know, have a you know, a a little fun event in the vineyard and no one would ever know, well, we know. And your uncomplicated affair just turned into a young marriage. You need to come up with a bride gift. You need to make her a respectable woman. You need to uh, give the gift that any young groom would make. And uh, you have a marriage that you can never get out of. So hope hope you really like that girl because you're going to spend the next 30 years with her. Okay, so it, not only the NIV then is kind of, you, yeah. you know, which you disagree with, but the NRSV translates, if a man meets a virgin who is not engaged and seizes her. Right, which is the same word that it uses earlier. That's right. So it oh, makes it seem like it's the it same. It makes it seem like it's the, it's the same verb, even in the NRSV. Yeah. Yeah. That, that okay. and, yeah, and I can tell you that one of the reasons that the translators are doing that is because there is a middle Assyrian law that requires a woman to marry a rapist. And we don't have to travel very far afield to find societies and communities that lay the shame of rape on the young woman who was raped, and she winds up bearing the price. But Deuteronomy isn't doing that. Deuteronomy is protecting her. And notice that the father has the right of refusal, which means the daughter has a right of refusal. She can tell her dad absolutely not. But once again, looking through the eyes of Hugenberger and Tigay, 
this could be the opportunity for a love match to uh, move itself through the court and right. to <laughs> avoid the the smart match and to go right, with the love match. Right, right, Fascinating. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's jump quickly to a, another issue that you've put a lot of thought into in Deuteronomy, and it's already come up a few times in our discussion, which is the economy. And so mm. chapter 24 is one of many places in De- Deuteronomy where economic issues come to the fore. And we're going to talk to Michael Rhodes in a later episode about tithes mm. and the Jubilee uh, ah. in more detail. But in chapters 24 and 26, um, one of the things that we see here in chapter 24 to start off is this idea of taking pledges. So verse 6 says Israelites should not take a mill or a millstone in pledge. Verses mm-hmm. 10 to 13 say you can't go into a house to take a pledge or keep a garment given in pledge overnight. And verse 17 says you can't take a pledge from a widow. So what is this pledge and what do these laws about pledges tell us about the economy of Deuteronomy? Mm. Oh, I love that question. Uh, so the economy of Deuteronomy, again, is a subsistence economy. I have a sequence of articles out there on this. I got to do the IBR annual lecture on this this mm-hmm. past year, which was tons of fun. So um, we've got a lot of debt, uh, just as we do today, and, and people who are um, bouncing off the bottom of the economic um yeah, the economic world. And so we've got a lot of laws that protect the marginalized. We've got gleaning laws that enlarge the marginalized into orchards to um, pick up the remains of a grape harvest, an olive harvest, a grain harvest. We've got lots about uh, taking care of the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner who lives among you. Uh, gosh, you can't turn three pages in Deuteronomy without bumping into these passages. Um, so loans are going to happen as well. Loan of labor, loan of income. And so taking a pledge is someone putting down capital for a loan. And this uh, business of taking a grinding stone or taking the garment of a poor man, uh, you, you can't take away from them their, the means by which they're going to pay you back the loan. Uh, We have debt slavery in the midst of this as well, which you might want to talk about a bit, something very foreign to us. But in reality, it's a means by which to take care of folks who have crashed into hard times. I wonder if you could connect it with chapter 26, which is Mm -hmm. uh, a passage that you deal with in Stewards of Eden a little bit. And it talks about first fruits and tithing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I wonder if there is a connection here between those fundamental ideas uh, and this other idea you've brought out about these laws like pledges and gleaning mm-hmm. that deal with protecting the poor and those who are economically marginalized. Mm-hmm. Can we pull those things together? Uh, yeah, I think we can. Um, so uh, the first thing about the tithe, the first fruits, the, uh, the firstborn of the flock, All of those laws require the Israelite farmer to bring the first 10% of his harvest, be it the harvest of a shepherd or the harvest of an agriculturalist, um, to the tabernacle, which put that in the context of the hungry season. These people have been eating old, dried, short portions for at least six weeks. And the first fruits come in, and they're required to give them away. So, first of all, the level of obedience that comes with that is enormous, but also the level of confidence that the first fruits won't be the only fruits, that God's going to continue to give through the harvest is profound. And I think it disciplines my heart, for sure, Mm -hmm. when I sit down with my checkbook and thinking about what I'm going to be giving away. Um, But this discipline of charity is a discipline that then provides for the impoverished. And even in the local villages, as you've read Deuteronomy, people are required to stockpile a portion of the tithe and give it every three years out to the impoverished. Um, And the goal, of course, is to keep those who have less fed and cared for. Um, So it's this constant cycle of... uh, 
People are working hard to take care of their own families, but they have to give a portion of it away to the tabernacle that is responsible for distributing it to the impoverished, which rehearses to everyone that this land and its produce and its resources don't simply belong to the farmer, which we in our environmental conversation could learn so much from. But the resources of this land have to constantly be available to the marginalized as well. And it's a lifestyle, a discipline uh, that recognizes the sovereignty of God over this land, the ultimate ownership of God over these resources, and God's care for the marginalized as well. Um, when you get to that business about taking the garment or the grinding stone as well, I'm sure you guys are aware of the uh, inscription um, from is Mesad Hashav Yahu, um, which is down on the coast. Uh, it comes from the 7th century, and so it's coming from Josiah's Jerusalem. And uh, uh, Josiah is known for his reforms, right? He's a great reformer. Uh, a lot of people would argue that his reforms only actually impacted Jerusalem, but this inscription is actually coming down uh, off the coast. So uh, a couple hundred miles away, down on the coastal plain, and a day laborer has uh, apparently been bringing in his quota to his supervisor, and his supervisor accuses him of not meeting his quota that day. And so his supervisor takes his cloak as a, a, cap, a capital um, to, uh, he's gonna hold the cloak until the day laborer is able to come up with enough harvest to pay off his debt. So our day laborer, and this guy's gotta be illiterate. I mean, I'm in Southern California. I'm thinking about the day laborers in the strawberry fields down in Ventura, yeah? And he comes to a local scribe and says, write this up for me. And what the scribe writes up for him is the day laborer's complaint that I did meet my, my ration. I did um, come up with my quota. I've got witnesses. But then he goes on to say, my supervisor took my cloak, and we all know that's illegal. Make him give it back to me so that your servant isn't cold at night. So Josiah's reforms, Deuteronomic law, have made their way all the way into the strawberry fields on the coast of Canaan, and an illiterate day labor is pleading Deuteronomy to get his cloak back. I love it. I mean, you know, it kind of goes with that as in verses 14 to 15 is that you don't withhold the wages of the poor mm -hmm. and needy laborers, that you pay them on the, regardless of their, whether they're uh, Israelites or aliens who reside in your land in one of your towns, you pay them their wages daily before sunset because they are poor and their livelihood depends on them. Otherwise, mm -hmm. they might cry to the Lord against you and you would incur guilt. I think that's mm -hmm. really fascinating. It's like, don't hold on to their money till the end of the month <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah they've, they've got a an electric bill to pay and while you're hanging around getting interest they're gonna go hungry well drawing on the genre that biblical scholars seem to have perfected which is the blurb which i'm sure there are some i'm sure there are some nice ones great on ones, ones on the back yeah. of your books i wonder if um given your work on the environment and, and the widespread concern with that issue mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. Is there any book or movie or article that, besides your own book, that you would recommend mm -hmm. that people engage with to help them mm. think this through? I think something that's very helpful for all of us is building our empathy for creation and our sense of awe of mm. what the creator has actually accomplished. And so in my family, we watched David Attenborough and his presentations on this amazing planet on a regular basis. I would encourage all of us to spend some time with uh, the esteemed, I think he's, he's actually been lorded by the queen, um, and uh, yeah, anything that he puts out as well. Yeah. 
So our blurb from Matt Lynch was also David Attenborough. It was. That's right. Yeah, he's was very it? popular these days. Yeah, yeah I know. Yeah. He's he has a like life size version of David yes. Attenborough in his house. <laughs> 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 so good. Well, that's doubly um, two witnesses. Two what? witnesses. Yeah, two that's witnesses right. confirming this. Well, right. according well, to Deuteronomy, then you know. You're going to have to pay attention. Two witnesses. Good as gold. Well, Sandy, thank you so much for your time. This was a delight to discuss these passages across Deuteronomy with you and draw on your broad range of expertise in the book. We wish you uh, all the best as you work on that commentary. We look forward to uh, finishing it up along with Erdman's and can't wait to see when it comes (laughs) out. Uh, And for our listeners, thank you so much for listening. We hope that this was as helpful for you as it was for us. Uh, And if it was then um, please do go to Apple Podcasts and put in a five-star rating. That means a lot to us. Um, I don't know if there's anything in there in the, you know, the Constitution and bylaws. Well, I'm sure the land depends on it. Probably so. Right. Yeah, if you mm. want it to rain, go to Apple Podcasts and make it put in a five-star review. <laughs> well, well I, I'd so love much. my time with you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank yeah. you, Sandy. Yeah. Thanks. The Two Testaments is produced with support from Sanford University, where Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes are professors in the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies. Thanks to you, our fellow travelers, who support this journey by donating on our website, thetwotestaments.com. Thanks also to Cam Thomas, Joe Zelder, and the team in the Sanford Faculty Success Center, and our student assistants for their help with production, editing, and promotion. Thank you.